Peter, when we first met you, I believe it was 2014 in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's almost been four years now, exactly. And um, we, we heard from you, and this, this interview has done incredibly well, as all of yours have. But this one, uh, I'd love to play it for you if you don't mind. Sure. Okay, great. great. I know this sort of feels like a Senate hearing, but it's not. I just... <laughs> I, just <laughs> I, I didn't do anything criminal. Oh, good. I, no, I remember no. that. I've right. got my lawyer here anyway. <laughs> good, good. Okay, no, this is about... We'll keep it on screenwriting here, and okay. we have a great yeah. clip to play. So here we go. Whoops, and... That I'm no good at it. Um, the reason that I'm a teacher and a consultant and a story doctor is that I, my big secret is I don't enjoy writing screenplays. I tried for a while to do it, but it's not my thing. I, I, if poetry paid, I'd be in the chips, because I'm a poet. <laughs> That's what I love to write. And I also like to write novels. But years ago, the reason I became what I am is um, I failed to complete a screenplay. It got huge interest. And I realized at the end of it, it says, I don't like this form. It's just not for me. I love analyzing it. I love understanding how it works. I love helping other people do it. But I don't enjoy sitting down every day and writing in the screenplay form. It's not my thing. Okay. Yeah. Great. So that was four years ago. Yeah. And what I found from, from an email from you is that you've actually completed uh, a, a historical TV series? Yeah, and I still hate writing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so nothing's changed. I, I'm always going to hate it. Okay. I, I was just telling Susie yesterday, God, I hate this. Um, I, but I'll tell you, yes, I've had some success. And what's great about that is is that it's... here. Here's the really great thing. Because when you're a teacher, you don't really know for sure. My stuff actually helps. It actually turns out to work. <laughs> the stuff I've been teaching actually has helped me, which is a huge relief because when you're a teacher, you're often up there and it's easy to pontificate and say, oh, do this and this form, try this tool. And, but most, some of my tools were terrible, but a lot of them actually worked. But I still hate writing. And I, I, that's always probably going to be the case. And I think maybe... There are some writers who don't hate writing, who they just love it, and they get 10 in the morning, and I can't wait to get to the desk. But I'm always going to loathe it. Um, But it is, I guess I'm good enough at it now to get paid. And so I'll do it. It's it's actually fun to get paid. And it's fun to know that your stuff's actually going to be out there. But yeah, I mean, and I'll tell you something else. I, I... I've been consulting and, and, and even ghostwriting uh, and, and, and story doctoring and teaching for 20 years. And I quit writing. I quit the whole idea that I was going to write like at least six times. I was like, screw this. And I meant it. This is terrible. It's awful. I'm never going to succeed. And I stopped. I stopped for several years. And I did that several times um, because the process of writing is so excruciating, I think, for me and for other people. Um, you know, I, I have to say, my uh, um, my 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 lovely bride, Susie, is a very successful writer in South Africa, and uh, we can cut this if she doesn't want me to tell tell this story. <laughs> but she's very successful uh, in South Africa as a writer. She has a, a column, and uh, she's created her own voice. I mean, she came here, and she started. Um, studying television and oh gosh she's frowning at me I probably shouldn't say this anyway she's saying my god this is hard 
and, and 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 it is hard. So film and television structure is difficult. It's a difficult form to master. It has so many different components. I think uh, if you're a writer, if you're a novelist, it's difficult to. All writing is hard, but television and film um, are. Are, are excruciatingly complex. There's so many moving parts to doing that uh, that I think it may be one of the harder writing forms. And it was certainly the case for me that that's the case. So yes, I I, I stand by the fact that I hate writing. <laughs> so what changed though? Sorry to interrupt, but what what changed? From I the guess time I we got that. I guess I got people that wanted to pay me to co-write with them as opposed to just story doctor so I w uh, and because of that and also I found the right partner and here, here this is critical especially when you're writing in television and film I know people that do it alone and they're great I don't know how that's even possible I highly recommend that you get a partner a writing partner um, I've had a couple in the last year uh, that uh, have been marvelous for me. And when you find the right partner, um, it's almost like you've gone from a singles bar to a, a couple. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, yay, I love you. And yes, you're here and you can help and, and I'm not alone. Oh. Yeah. And that's really what it feels like. It's like, and also they admire you and they tell you you're great. And that's something you need someone to tell you you're great when you're a writer because you feel like crap all the time. And you're also getting producers and managers and agents whose main job is to tell you you're crap. <laughs> That's what they do. This is crap. This is pretty much, you just put that on uh, autoplay when you're, oh, my manager's calling. What are they going to say? They're going to say this is crap. And that's what they do. This is crap. How dare you? I, I just talked to someone about this story. Well, this it's crap, Peter. It's absolute crap. And I have to say again, that is also what you got to get used to um, in the commercial field, which is that, and I think uh, William Goldman said this a long time ago, and I didn't realize how true it was. He said everything, everything is a piece of shit. He says when they refer to your script, well, they've just they may have bought it for a million dollars. They go, hey, I just read your piece of shit. Uh, you know, well, you're, we're filming your piece of shit next week, right? <laughs> it's a piece of shit. So. Anybody who, who feels like, well, I'm going to be validated and I need to be affirmed. and I, You should not go into the Hollywood uh, writing business because whatever the culture is that originated in Hollywood, and I think it was a bad deal for writers. I think back in the 30s, we gave up our birthright for a mess of pottage. Uh, and when we said, hey, we don't need our name on the, it's not our movie, we're just the right. Whatever happened back then, there's a toxic relationship that was commemorated back then between the writer and the producer. And the relationship is the producer's in charge, the writer's sort of servile, and, and they're gonna get the abuse. And whenever there's a problem, it's usually a problem for the writer. It's, the it's not the producer's problem, it's the writer's problem. You just didn't write it well enough, right? So you are gonna get a lot of criticism and abuse, even when they say they like your thing, even when they buy your thing. You're st it's still going to be, well, it's a piece of shit. It's, it's, and that's just sort of seems to be, at least in my experience, what it's like. So you need a writing partner to grab your hand and go, that's okay, darling. Yes, we're great, aren't we? Yes, we are. It doesn't matter what they say. Yes, we're great. And, and, and that's what writing partners can do for you. I highly recommend you do not do this alone. 
So knowing that you'd rather critique or analyze a story rather than sit down and write it out. Oh, hang, stop right there. Mm -hmm. Okay, go <laughs> I ahead. I don't anymore because I get paid so much more for actually writing. Well, how so, did that happen? Uh, I guess because the things I've been analyzing and, and thinking about and teaching for 20 years, a lot of them have turned out to actually work, okay? So, <laughs> so it's kind of nice. You know, I've been talking about, oh, the BMOC and, you know, the structural tool and all the core one and all this stuff. But what it turns out is that these things actually do help. And even though it's helped other writers, and I've been told that for a long time, it's great and a relief that it, they actually work. So what I find as a, as a writer as opposed to a teacher is these tools work, but so, so it's a relief to have them. So when I'm stymied or I can't move forward, I go back to my own work. I go back to my own book. I go back to my own lectures and I go, okay, where am I? Like, I'm working on a, a mini series now about uh, Jack Johnson, who was the first African American heavyweight champion, boxing champion of the US. And uh, it, it, it's, it's been sold to a production company, and, but they want, they want changes. I'm co writing it with a, a brilliant guy that I met uh, actually. Um, uh, at a talk I gave, um, and I often meet people that I collaborate with when I, I give a talk, um, and he had this project and it was marvelous. But one of the things I talk about is the superhero uh, a model, because you know superheroes are big now, right? Uh, whether they're serious, uh, like uh, um, uh, uh, some of the uh, of the uh, serious stories, or if they're if they're a, a, a comic, like in Deadpool two, we can talk about that too. But the superhero is huge now, and so the superhero model involves a, a very particular tool. We can talk about it at some point. I don't know if I want to go into it now, but what I decided was because several people had taken a pass at, at Jack Johnson. And I think someone actually is uh, um, making a movie of him now, very big. But, and I don't think I'm giving away anything here, secrets-wise. Um, a superhero, the reason a superhero is fun to watch is not for the same reason most heroes are fun to watch. Most heroes are fun to watch because they're wounded and they've got some big bleeding wound and, and, and we're going to watch them heal it. We're going to watch. That's the story. Superheroes, no. Superheroes are not wounded. They're superheroes. Um, often, the old-fashioned superhero. The uh, in three hundred, Zack Snyder's three hundred. Leonidas, he doesn't have a wound. It's like, oh, my mommy hurt me, and I, I, I got to figure out how to do that. No, in three hundred, he's an old-fashioned superhero because all the reason we want to watch an old-fashioned superhero is to see if he can lift the bigger weight that the villain's putting on him. At the four crucial points of the story, the villain just gets bigger and says, hey, you, you, you could lift that 300 pounds, huh? Think of the villain in a superhero as a deranged trainer at Gold's Gym. And, and you, he says, all right, so you're gonna lift 300 pounds, all right, you did that, okay. So at the 30-page point, you lifted the 300 pounds. Okay, 60-page point, we're gonna put 900 pounds on there. Can you lift that? So the superhero, uh, secret of a superhero story, that kind of superhero story, there's several kinds, is that can he lift the bigger weight the villains put on that rack? That's it. It's not about psychology. It's not about core wounds. So that was our job with Jack Johnson. How can the villain get bigger? 
on at the end of each episode. What's the bigger weight they could put on Jack Johnson? Now, instead of spending weeks and months figuring out how is he wounded? How are we going to give him uh, mentors on one side, wounders on the other? How, no, no, it's all about how big is that villain? Is that villain getting bigger? Because if the villain's getting bigger, the audience is going to watch. Shakespeare did the same thing, by the way. Um, and I used to direct Shakespeare in New York uh, when I was in, after school. And uh, Shakespeare had wrestling matches in which the villain just got bigger and bigger. So in other words, long story short, not anymore, but I really can use my tools to solve story problems that I'm getting paid to solve. So when they work, I'm so excited. I'm so ecstatic. It, it means all the 20 years I've spent doing this is actually paying off for me. And also, now I have a little bit more credibility uh, in when I teach, right? Because the rap on teachers is, well, you can teach what you can't do, right? Yeah, that's what you're teaching, you're not doing. Okay, I get it. Well, now I'm doing. So I, I can say, okay, well, yeah, but these tools actually do work, so shut up. <laughs> shut up. I, 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 I did it. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> I want to hear your process for when this partner approached you. Did you try to talk yourself out of working with this person? Oh no! I want this to hear one about guy. Uh, there's several, but the one guy I love. Uh, uh, I don't know if Richard would want me to give his last name. I'll just That's call okay. Richard. okay. But Richard, I met at um, uh, a Richard Finger. Yeah, I'll tell Ooh. you who he is. Yeah, he's well, a great guy. He's a Texan, and and uh, he he met me at, at what I was speaking at Story Expo. Uh, in LA a couple of years ago, um, and uh, and and I was giving a, a lecture on action heroes, and after he says, you know, I'd kind of like you to take a look at this uh, story, and he doesn't really talk that way. But I'm going to say, <laughs> got to embellish it. Uh, for yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I love Jack Johnson. I mean, well, I'd never heard of Jack Johnson, and not only is Jack Johnson a cool, uh, 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 the first African American heavyweight champion, he's, he's a real guy. He's a superhero. I mean, you can't believe what this guy did. He, went, he tried to race at the Indy 500. He had his own sports car. I mean, they wouldn't let him because he was black. But this guy lived in 1900, uh, and he just acted like the Ku Klux Klan never existed. He walked, went where he wanted. He did what he wanted. He loved who he wanted. And he was, by the way, Muhammad Ali says he was a better boxer than he was. Muhammad Ali says that, and the one guy who saw them both box, because there's a guy who founded Ring Magazine, he's really old, one Muhammad, but he saw Jack Johnson box, and he saw Muhammad he said Jack Johnson was better. And by the way, when this guy was fighting in America, the white audiences were throwing chairs at him while he was boxing. I mean, he had to dodge bottles in the ring, and he still became heavyweight champion. They passed them, they, they prosecuted him for the Man Act because he, he, he liked to uh, uh, marry white girls, which at that time you did not do. Mm -hmm. And so his, and then he went to Leavenworth prison because they were so angry at him. For and, what? Uh, so. uh, the ma violations of what's called the Mann Act, which was, it's called the White Slavery Act. It was, if you transported a woman over state lines, it was just BS. It was designed to prosecute whoever the federal government wanted to prosecute. So they put him in Leavenworth, and then the warden was so impressed by him that he ended up giving, letting him have exhibition matches inside oh, Leavenworth, and great. then he got out. And he died in a car crash uh, in 47. Um, but again, just like Leonidas in 300, this guy, uh, he, the interesting part of his story was the villains got bigger and bigger, right? That were, 
that were on that were uh, prosecuting him. The villains got bigger and bigger. First, it was just the local uh, folks. Then it became the state cops in Chicago. Then it became the federal uh, uh, cops, all prosecuting Jack Johnson for who he was. So, this fit my superhero formula great. And and Richard kept uh, saying, "Well, let's just do one more." He started writing it, and then I said, "Well, and he was hiring me to help him, which I do. I do consults." Um, and, and you can hire me and then I'll, I'll critique your work. And he finally said, you know, Peter, I'm paying you so damn much money to, to, to consult with me. You just take half the doggone thing and let's do it together. And that'll save me money. <laughs> and so that's what we did. And uh, Richard and I just, we work so well together. Um, we're working on another project, Nero. Uh, which is um, a, a famous Roman emperor uh, who is a, a mass murderer and kind of an anti-hero. I have a, again, I, I, I found out and figured out how anti-heroes work. I uh, have been teaching that for some time. And that tool works great too, by the way. So the tools that I'm using are the tools that I constructed to teach with. And so far, they all work. There's a couple of tools I have that are crappy that haven't turned out to work that well in, in, when I really put them into practice. We can talk about those too, but I'd rather talk about the ones that do work. <laughs> just real quickly, I would love to hear why, just, just real quickly, why was he such a threat to people? And then we'll move on. Jack Johnson? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, he was this big, beautiful black man who was completely unscared, right? He was, and he was, had, a, had kind of a smirk. He was kind of James Bond. He had a little arrogance, right? He was just a guy who didn't give a shit about your uh, anger at him. He didn't care whether or not you were uh, uh, upset with him for not following the rules. He was a rebel um, at a time when if you were a black man and you were even seen with a white woman, you could get lynched, literally get lynched. And he was also a great musician. He had a nightclub act. This guy did everything. He was a pop star, right? He played a viol and there's film of him doing that. So this guy could do anything. He was like Jay-Z combined with uh, uh, Muhammad Ali combined with 007, right? <laughs> and, and, and everybody, all, all the white authority figures hated him and he just didn't care. He did exactly what he wanted to do. So. He's an amazing character, and uh, I know we're going to get somebody amazing to play him. So you're shopping the series around? You're looking for a production company? or No, it's been sold one. to it's a production one. company, but we want to sell it to Netflix. We want to sell it uh, to somebody else. I want to be involved in that, too. Our History Channel. Because um, I, I, I know what a fantastic story this is. Sounds like it. And, and it's just the kind of story that um, is perfect for a time, for this time, uh, African-American hero, um, which I think is, is timely. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm a white guy, uh, so I am, uh, I understand that my kind of guys pretty much run Hollywood for a long time. I think it's time that changed. Um, but the story theme here is about Contravening the rules is about new heroes, so I think it's it's a great chance to show a real guy, you know. I mean, his real life was so insanely cool that you really couldn't make it up. So it's a great it's a great idea, and I know it's going to sell. 
So where did you go to start shopping it around? I know you said it's already been sold, but can you take a step back? There and, are, uh, well, uh, since it's happening right now, I, I, I can't tell exactly who oh, we're going sure, to, sure. Mm -hmm. but we're looking at um, channels. We're looking at um, channels that have names, that have channel in the name. Sure, sure. <laughs> and, and also, <laughs> yes, and the big companies. I mean, look, there's $14 billion worth of money now in the three, uh, in the two fields, internet platform and cable. There's $14 billion worth of money chasing stories right now. And it's funny because Susie uh, tells me, she says, don't say it's easy. It's not, <laughs> it's not easy to You'll sell anything. <laughs> you know, it, it's so hard and, 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 and you know, you've got to be experienced and that's all true. It, it, this isn't, Hollywood's not like, there's not streets paved with gold, right? It's extremely difficult still. To, to sell anything in, in this business. And it'd be silly to say it's not. But, um, it, you know, this is the most exciting time, I think, in history for television, at least in the US. Now, I'm going over to South Africa uh, in a couple of weeks to lecture over there at the Durban Film Mart. I'm also getting remarried. We're not married, I'm having another ceremony. Nice. Uh, but, um, and, and the South, America, South African television market, um, I think is 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 growing. The I, I've just been working with a guy in Brazil, uh, a big soap opera star down there, who wants to uh, do a, a serial for Netflix. Um, I think worldwide television is just on fire. But the interesting thing is this miniseries, John Jack Johnson. The miniseries form in television is probably the closest to a movie form television offers. What do I mean by that? A, the, a miniseries like what you'll see um, uh, in, in the assassination of Gianni Versace and Trust, these are long movies. Television miniseries are like long movies rather than TV serials. Now, I just uh, have worked on um, and been paid for <laughs> a, a, a crime drama serial for television, which is not a miniseries. We can talk about that too, but the miniseries form is like a long movie. Why is that? Because it, you have wounded characters who at the end of the miniseries have healed or they bled out one or the other, but they have an arc, okay? And that miniseries arc is just like a long movie. So with Jack Johnson, he's a superhero, but he still had a, a, a journey. Um, you, so you get a progression in the story. Um, and for instance, in Assassin of Gianni Versace, um, you've got a wounded guy. Um, Andrew Cunanan uh, was a wounded guy. His dad wounded him. And, and his wound never healed, but he, he tried to heal it. And so you saw this, it, it was like a, like a seven episode long movie. So it had a BMOC, which is, we can talk about that too, in it. So when I'm writing miniseries, if you're a, tele, if you're a movie writer who wants to go into television, you should think about as a transition, writing a miniseries because it'll give you uh, the opportunity to use all your movie chops, uh, but in a television form that lets you transition into television because you need to have a character or a set of characters who are bleeding at the beginning, who get mentors and wound rippers all through it, and then they learn the theme of the show towards the end, and then they either heal or don't. And that's what a mini-series gives you that a serial television show doesn't give you. In serial television, obviously, the wounded person just keeps bleeding all through it for 100 episodes. Um, but 
many series offer you the form, a lot of the forms of a movie in a television setting. Well, I knew Sharp Objects, I think, debuted on Sunday. I didn't watch it. But I don't I, either. I've never even heard of it. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's a Gillian Flynn, and I hope I'm saying her name correctly, yeah. uh, the writer of Gone Girl. And right. I guess she wrote this story, from because I, I started just listening to some interviews, before she wrote Gone Girl and these other uh, stories. And it's about a wounded character. And it's a female. And she said she's very wounded and has issues, but she's likable. And she thought that was interesting that for this character it had to be defended that she was likable because she kind of said well Walter White does he have to be likable uh, you know some of these other you know Tony Soprano does he have to be likable um, I would argue they are likable okay but but sympathetic is actually more important than likability if you look at Tony Soprano he's a good example um, it's old now but I think it's the most brilliant television ever made I, I think it, if you haven't seen Sopranos you should watch it Okay, because it's still the most brilliant. It's like Shakespeare. Tony Soprano is a murderer. He's a horrible human being. And yet we love him. Why? We love him because he's got this deep wound in him and it comes from his mother. And the entire first season of The Sopranos is about this horrible mother and how awful she is to Tony. And even though when he tries to kill her on the gurney, when she, they're rolling her out of the, out of the nursing home, and she's going, <laughs> he's trying, literally trying to get her with a pillow. Our sympathies are with Tony. Why? Well, here's a big secret of the anti-hero, which I'll tell you, which I talked about earlier. Anti-heroes are great guys who returned bad for sympathetic reasons, right? For sympathetic reasons, Michael Corleone becomes a horrible man. Why? He's saving his dad. He's saving his family, right? Tony Soprano is a horrible guy, but we like him. Why? Because he wants to save his family. He wants, the first season of Tony Soprano, as we sing, he's, the ducks are leaving his pond. His kids are leaving the nest, right? He's trying to get his mom saved into a, into a home. She's like, ah, leave me alone. You're a horrible human being. So the great secret of an antihero is to make the villains and the people around them worse and less likable than the hero themselves. So Tony Soprano's mom is the most miserable, horrible human being ever conceived on television. And Jay says that. He's based on his own mom. But so we love Tony because his mom is just so awful. And we think, God, poor guy. No wonder he turned into a murdering psychopath. His mom is awful. So that's the critical thing about uh, making someone sympathetic. And, and also, likable, yes, it's important, but to make them sympathetic, you simply make uh, the other people around them worse. Michael Corleone had to save his dad. Nobody else would do it. His brother couldn't do it. He had these terrible villains around him that, that were shooting his entire family. He had to save his family. And in doing so, he eventually lost his family, right? Just like Tony Soprano. Tony Soprano ends up killing his nephew, ends up killing the people all around him, probably ends up uh, having his, his, somebody shot in that final restaurant scene around him. But we have great sympathy for him because we see his wounds. The wounds are everything. Wounds are why we love a character. And if when you first start out writing a story, 
You should show me your hero or your character's wounds the second they get on screen. The second they're on screen, show me the wound. That's how you get somebody to be likable. You get the note, your character's not likable, which you get all the time from a producer. That's how to make them likable. Show them bleeding. Can you give me an example of just showing, whether it's someone waking up in the morning and they have back pain and oh, they're yeah, getting Oh yeah, yes, of course. Breaking Bad, <laughs> who's this horrible guy. He winds up being, you know, killing his, his, uh, uh, his, uh, his uh, brother-in-law, who we don't mind seeing die. But, but he winds up ruining his family entirely. Jesse, when we first see Walter White, and we'll actually first see him in his underwear in the desert, but then, when we first see him at home waking up, He's waking up in this awful little bedroom with a terrible uh, nightstand from, from Ikea. He's got <laughs> uh, this crappy little exercise machine he gets up on, and the exercise machine's broken after about 10 seconds in one of those step things. And then the camera pans to the wall, and we see on the wall that in 1985, Walter White was in line for a Nobel Prize in physics and chemistry, right? And then we go back to him, and he said, and, and, and he's, he's dead. He's been, something's murdered him. What is it? Well, we find out much later what it is. He was betrayed. He was, he was uh, uh, betrayed by, by his partner, by his love. But he is, and then he goes and he slumps out and he's sitting at this breakfast table and it's his 50th birthday and he gets soy bacon for his birthday. <laughs> and then his wife goes, eat it. You'll like it. And then his son comes out and says, well, the water heater is not working. Well, just you got to get up early with the first shower. Why can't we buy a new water heater, right? Well, because Walter's a loser, right? So everything about Walter shows us that he's been horribly wounded by something. So what we're rooting for is for Walter to get better. And so when Walter becomes a badass, I don't know about you, but I'm on his side. I know he's killing innocent people. I don't care, Walter. Get him, get him. Stand, kill that guy. So that is a terrible part of the human soul, maybe. But it's the device by which we make a character sympathetic is to show their wounds. Because as human beings, we're not going to be interested in good-looking, perfect people who are making a lot of money and they're great and everything they do. Who gives a shit? We want to see people that we can identify with because that's not us. We've got problems, right? I've got problems, right? I want to see my problems and somebody else with problems dealing with problems, okay? And you can say, well, you know, a show like, um, like uh, Riverdale doesn't do that, but they do. And, and there's <laughs> fantasy shows, uh, absolutely fantasy shows where, where that's not the case. But most of the time, you do want to see a wound. That's what likability really means. Oh, they're like me. They're screwed up. They don't have it all together. Wish I did. Maybe they'll get it together, right? Well, and then that means that I'll get it together. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, how did they get it together, right? But mostly it's just, yeah, they're like me. You know, they're not perfect. They're not, uh, you know, they, they're, they're like me. Well, you've been using an acronym for a little bit. And what's funny is driving over, I was looking over the notes, and I think that David had said off camera that BMOC stands for Big Man on Campus in yeah, the, yeah, the basketball world, which I was not yeah, privy yeah, to. Yeah. I did not know that. Oh, but really? for, for writing, oh, yeah. uh, what, what, what is your take on Beginning, middle, obstacle, climax. That's what that stands for. Um, well, I, I found this out years ago, analyzing all movies, that the, it was an equally MC Square moment for me. There are four crescendos in a movie where the hero is asked to change 
and asked to learn the theme of the movie and asked to learn how to heal. All the things I talk about, the big things I talk about, healing, learning the theme, um, stopping bleeding, all that. There's four times in a movie story, inevitably, that that happens at a crescendo. It's at 30 pages in, 60 pages in, 90 pages in, and about 108 pages in. Those I call the beginning, middle, obstacle, climax, the BMOC, right? Now that's a structure that is in every great movie practically you've ever seen. It's not in a Godard movie, okay? If you're writing a French wave movie, I'm sorry, I won't be able to help you. That's just a French guy peeing in an alley for two hours, and that's great, right? I love those movies, but, th but in, a, in, a, in a Hollywood film, um, that structure is invariably in the story, and if it's not, there's usually something missing. It'll be superseded someday, but that's what's operating now. Now, that BMOC operates in everything. Um, uh, every, every movie, uh, uh, Dunkirk, uh, um, in Deadpool, um, everything. But now, in Deadpool, let's just take an example. In Deadpool, which is a great movie, Again, I'm big on wounds, right? What's our wound in the Deadpool? The guy, well, he's wounded because he's ugly. He becomes extremely disfigured by a chemical bath, right? And because of his wound, I'm ugly, uh, he can't face his girl. He doesn't feel lovable. So the big crescendos, the BMOC points in that movie are, is he going to have the, the balls or, or, or the courage to believe that his his girl will love him even though he's ugly, okay? So what he's got to learn in there to heal his wound is, I'm lovable. His wound is, I'm not lovable, right? And, and that's a wound we can all identify with. A lot, a lot of us think we're not lovable. Sure. So he's, his journey in Deadpool, the crescendos of the movie are, are you going to realize you're lovable? Well, the answer for, for him is uh, yes, no, 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 yes. Yes, no, no, yes. Because after he gets... Uh, uh, chemically uh, doused, he, he's too ugly. And it takes him most of the movie to get to where he can take his mask off. That's the climax, right? That's the final point, he takes the mask off. Now I use Deadpool, I could use a more highfalutin movie, but I want people to understand these, these, this pattern of the BMOC works in every movie. Now you can say, wow, that's great, Peter, that's a tool, ah, so what? The tool will help you write your movie. You gotta figure out what your theme is, you gotta figure out what your character's wound is, and you have to figure out how they're gonna be healing it, that's it. Those are the three things. So the BMOC does that. Now, the interesting thing is, a few years ago, I freaked out and nearly lost my shit because I thought, okay, God, movies are they're going to be over. Television is everything. Oh, my God. I, 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 I'm, I'm a movie guy. I, I don't know what to do. So I slowly, sort of tentatively, sort of, okay, will this work? Does this work? Oh, wait a minute, that works. Okay, that works. Does the BMOC work? Well, the BMOC turns out to work in television as well. So this tool works in drama and in comedy and TV as well. Because why? Because what we want to see in a story is a hero learning to heal, and even if he doesn't heal completely, because he doesn't in TV, he's still going to go on a journey towards healing a little bit. The critical difference between film and television is in TV, the hero doesn't heal, but he heals a little bit, and then at the end he gets ripped open again. So every week he's going to heal a little bit and then get ripped open again. Every week, 150 times. But the BMOC works at the exact same places in a television hour than it does in a movie. There's just an extra M <laughs> because there's an extra act.
So let's take a four-act television structure. The BMOC, it's B-M-M-O-C. The O-C, the obstacle point, is the point when it looks like the hero's gonna lose. And in a movie, this is right at the 90-page point. Let's take a movie everybody knows, Star Wars. Uh, Luke gets to the planet, the last rebel planet. Uh, uh, Darth has followed him there with a homing beacon. He's got a Death Star. He's going to blow up the whole damn thing. There's nothing Luke can do about it. There's just a little few starfighters, and he's got a Death Star. That's it. The movie's over. And then, of course, what happens? R2-D2 says, hey, I stole the plans of the Death Star. There's a little hole. You can fill a missile in if you really get close. And Luke, you can the only one get that missile in that hole if you use the Force, not your computer. And so the obstacle point is all is lost, and the climax is Luke learns the theme of the story, Luke, will you use the force to rescue the princess and save the Republic? He puts his computer away. All the other starfighters used it. They couldn't get the missile in. He puts his computer away. He's learned. He hears Obi-Wan say, Luke, use the force, not the computer. And he puts the missile in the hole. Climax. So the obstacle point is all is lost. And the climax is, Luke, you did it. In Breaking Bad, the obstacle point is, He's making meth in the desert. Jesse comes back out with uh, uh, Crazy Eight and the other uh, criminal. They're going to kill him both. Walt's in his underwear. He has no defense. He's going to get shot and killed. But then he says, I'll teach you. I'll teach you how to cook. I'll teach you how to cook my recipe. And the guy goes, really? Yes. And they go in the RV. And Walter throws poison into the thing. Whoosh! And the climax is he kills them both and becomes the mass murderer he's gonna be for the next 150 episodes. So that's the climax. So the O and the C point, and I'm not explaining this well, I'm sorry, but it's in my lecture online. It's a complex little tool, but it works so great. It's like a little engine that works any television structure you want, just like it did in film. So what did I learn when I started learning about television? Everything I learned in movies works. Every element that I learned about in movies works in television. The structure is just a little more complicated, that's all. So you say that the BMOC, mm -hmm. which the B stands for one time marker, M another, O another, and on. Yes, 30 okay. page, 30, 60, 90, 110 page. Okay. In a script, movie script. So to play the devil's advocate here, we sometimes see these comments, usually they come in late at night, which are, this is why Hollywood writes formulaic crap. Yes. How do, we, how do we contend that? How do we say, well, then maybe Hollywood's not for you? What, what would be your answer okay. to someone? Take a show that I think, the new Robert Altman is a guy named uh, uh, Glover. He's a guy that wrote, is writing a show right now called Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Now Atlanta is, I think, the hippest half hour show on television. It's a, he, he, uh, Glover's an African-American dude. He's been an actor in several big shows. Um, and but now he's got his own show. This guy gives us a world that we've never seen before, which is the world of middle, kind of lower middle class African American Atlanta. Okay, now Atlanta is a cool city, and it's a big. There's a big African American culture that's part of Atlanta. I would submit to you, you probably don't know much about that world, right? I, I certainly don't. didn't, no. right? He shows you, and that's one of the great things, there's nine questions I ask you when, you when I'm working with you on a television show. One of them is, 
he's showing me a world I ain't seen before because I don't want to see New York again on the Upper East Side with people here. <laughs> Please, right? Show me a new world, right? So this is the world of middle and lower middle class Atlanta, and it's very African-American Atlanta. And it's very specific, and the story feels very loose. If you go look at the pilot of Atlanta, and it doesn't look like it's about much, sort of like a Robert Altman movie. It's got a very loose feel to it. It feels very improvisational. It feels like there's no rules at all, right, in this story. It's got every rule, every structure, every storyline, every rhythm of How I Met Your Mother. Or the most commercial sitcom-y structure that you'd ever want or ever not want. Or if you're a hipster, you'd say, I don't want to write that, right? It follows all the rules. So why is it so cool? Because it takes those rules and it shows you stuff you've never seen. The reason people say, ah, Hollywood's so formulaic is they're looking at bad unimaginative stories with characters you've seen a thousand times, with situations you've been in a thousand times, with with, with in a world you've seen a thousand times. Set, but the structure, the commercial structure, is there because it's beautiful. The bones are beautiful. You can take different bones out, put other bones in, but there's an appeal below the surface of beauty. If you look at what we consider to be beauty, uh, if you took a, a, a skeleton, you'd see there was a conformity to the bone structure. Now you can put whatever you want on top of that bone structure. You can make uh, the person uh, 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 Tunisian, you can make them Indian, you can make them American Indian, you can make them whatever you want, but the bones below that determines whether or not they're beautiful. I think structure of story is like the bones beneath the, 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 the face. It's what we're instinctively drawn to as human beings, and that doesn't change, but what changes, what makes things unique are, is it a new world? Are these characters we haven't seen before? Is this guy have a wound that we haven't seen before? A Glover in Atlanta gives us a guy who is a real smart guy who went to Princeton, but he failed because he's got a core wound that he's a loser. And he's come back and he's just bumping around and hanging out in this middle class, lower middle class world of African American Atlanta. But he's a loser. He left Princeton probably because he felt like, I don't, these people aren't like me, which I felt when I went, I went to an Ivy League school and I felt the same thing. So, because I'm a loser, I'm going to drop out and I'm going to go back home. Now, back in Atlanta, he gets involved with his cousin who's a hip-hop artist who he shouldn't get involved with. He also already has a baby, Glover does, his character does, and he's not being a really good father, but he's trying. He's not being a good husband at all. So. All the things, all the elements that we've seen from a dozen sitcoms from 1960 on are all present in Atlanta. But because we've never seen this world before, because we've never seen this, so he's kind of a slacker, an African-American slacker, and it's also very funny. So every commercial cliche of structure is in this story, and yet it's the freshest thing on television. And so that's my argument against not using structure. Think of it this way. In, in, in California, we have these, these uh, uh, vanity license plates, right? 
And, and in a vanity license plate, I think you get seven letters, right? And in that seven letters, you've got to be witty, okay? <laughs> you can't go, oh man, you know what? It's such a cliche to have seven letters. My vanity plate's going to have 42. Because if you, take, if you make the vanity plate 42 characters long, it's not going to be funny when you say, you know, uh, uh, if you have a seven letter word uh, uh, that says, let's say you're driving a Corvette and your seven letters are two inches, right? Okay. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Yes, got me to laugh. If it was a 42-letter plate, you'd go, hey, I drive a vet because I have a small penis. Is that funny? <laughs> no. No, not Because the form is too big. So commercial form is what we delight in. We want to, the limitations of commercial form produce the, the entertainment, right? The fact that it's a half an hour means you must cram certain things in it. And the delight of an audience in a commercial art form is how are they gonna cram something we've never heard about and is witty into this limited commercial form? That's what commercial art does. That's why it's commercial art. You wanna make a, 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 a sitcom that doesn't follow the rules, great. Make one that's four hours long. Don't follow any of the rules. You can do it, but it's not commercial art and your audience will probably be fairly limited. Unless you're such a super genius, you're gonna create an entire new art form. That's what Susie's gonna do. She's... <laughs> Look, you can make an entire new art form. Please, God, let's see it from you. I'd love to see it. But you're gonna to have to be greater than Shakespeare, who, by the way, used a three-act structure. <laughs> Okay, Shakespeare worked inside a commercial structure, the structure of Stratford on Avon. He worked inside that structure. His plays were inside a commercial structure, and yet they're the greatest plays in history. So you can be original and be commercial too. That's my seductive message for, for the whorish Hollywood <laughs> that there is, a Hollywood pimp telling you, come on, baby. Get in the seraglio. Do it our way. <laughs> you can still be original. <laughs> we put out a call a few days ago on our community tab on YouTube for people to chime in with some questions. So I was going to read a few if that's okay. Oh, yes, please. Okay. So this one comes in from Rosemary Orange. And oh. Rosemary writes, when you write a spec pilot, how many episodes should you have ready to go? Do you only pitch the pilot? Uh, yeah, you only pitch the pilot. Um, and look, everything I say is probably wrong. I mean, I'm just <laughs> going on my experience, right? And because everybody can be different, and, and everybody, there's no nobody knows how showbiz works. But I'll give you what I think and what's working for us. Uh, we've we, for Jack Johnson, we wrote a pilot and four other episodes, but everybody only wants to read the pilot. Okay. Now we have outlines too for the other four episodes. Um, but generally speaking, and it's great to have five episodes. If you want to do this extreme example, I think David Simon's Wire, he had written every episode and he put that in the story Bible in these extended outlines. But I think, uh, I think what you need, generally speaking, and check this with managers and agents, because I don't know sometimes, I mean, I'm not a manager and agent, but a pilot is, is the crucial thing to have. And then a one or two sheet, which gives you the concept of the show, um, which is, uh, you know, you say you're like with Jack Johnson, we've got, a, um, it's, a, uh, it's two pages, it's Jack on the cover, and then it's, um, uh, it's uh, oh God, what's our cut line? Um, 
um, Raging Bull meets, uh, 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 God, what does Raging Bull meet? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> Raging Bull meets somebody, Muhammad or <laughs> Muhammad Ali. But uh, anyway, so it's two-page concept sheet, but the pilot we work and work and work and work on. Now we've written four other episodes, written the whole miniseries, but we haven't, what they seem to want to see is the pilot, this two-page concept line, uh, and then also, um, oh, Raging Bull meets um, Rocky. <laughs> that makes sense, right? Uh, so the pilot is, uh, our pilot is a long pilot, it's many series. it's actually 120 pages, it's probably too long. But yeah, see the pilot and then have the other episodes, if you've got them done, ready. Uh, and, uh, uh, but the pilot is what everybody reads. And then they're going to also say you want it, we want a sales deck. When they get to that, we're, we're actually compiling what's called a sales deck now. Hmm. Sales decks are essentially, at least as far as I can tell, about 20 or 30 PowerPoint slides, or uh, if, you're, if you're smart and you have a Mac, they're, what, uh, they're not a PowerPoint. Anyway, uh, but they are essentially uh, two or three lines uh, per, per deck, what this shows about, who the market is, who the audience is for. They're generally for the producer's sales team where they sit around sort of brain dead off and go, what are we really going to buy this? What is it? What's it about? So it, it breaks down um, this mini series with what it's about, who's it for, who's the audience going to be, uh, that kind of thing. But maybe you should just wait to do the sales deck after you get your uh, uh, interest from your uh, manager and agent. But basically a pilot, okay? The pilot's the real critical thing to have and a concept sheet. Does this sales deck have any graphics in it or it's you just can, a text? Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. I mean, I'd show you ours, but I don't think I can. No, that's okay. But it's, it's like 20, 20 slides. <laughs> um, it's, you know, first slide, I'll give you an example. First slide is Jack Johnson. There he is. <laughs> And then it's, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali meets, uh, no, uh, what did I say? <laughs> Raging Bull Raging meets, Bull meets Rocky. Rocky. Mm -hmm. That's a slide. You go to the next slide, you know. Uh, he was the uh, first great African-American uh, heavyweight in history. He broke all the rules, right? Each one of these is a slide. So imagine you're a production company and you're always watching this. Oh, okay, this is what we're going to buy. Okay. That's really what it is. It's just like a sales deck. Like card after card, you know, this will break all the rules. You know, this will give you the most money. It, it's a sales technique. That's what a sales deck is. Sure. And it's designed to give the production uh, company an idea of what they're buying. Because they don't want to read the pilot. <laughs> they're too lazy. Like, oh, okay, oh, I would read the pilot, but it's 120 pages long. Just give this to my, uh, my person that breaks this all down. Because I used to be a story analyst, a script reader. And this was, used to be my job. When someone got interested in a project, they'd go, okay, well, they sent us the pilot. It sounds really good. I've read the two concept pages. Here, Peter, uh, you read it and then <laughs> break it into a five-page. Whew, five pages, man. That's all I can do. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what I did for, for seven years. I was a script reader, which is a great way to learn how to tell a movie and television story because you're breaking it down and you're analyzing. I teach this at... Uh, you say, and at my own school, Peter Russell, scriptdoctor.com. That's Peter Russell, scriptdoctor.com for all your story needs. Except, you know, film courage too. But uh, yeah, but I, I, so I teach a class on how to analyze script and write what's called coverage. So when we send this thing out to production companies, they'll have their script reader read the pilot 
and then they'll synopsize it into a five-page synopsis, and then they'll give comments afterwards, which are, uh, uh, what, are the bit of, what are the good points of the story? What are the bad points of the story? What's the potential for development? That's what they do. And so a lot of producers who are good producers, I've worked for fab fabulous geniuses like Brian Grazer uh, and Les Moonves, they will actually then read the pilot. Lazy producers will just go, oh, okay, yeah, well, the coverage looks good, okay, and we got a slot, so let's, let's buy it or not. So, but that's why it's critical for you as a beginning writer to write the absolute best script you can write. It's, uh, it's so hard to break into this business, and there's no rules on how to do it, except I have people ask me, Peter, so how do I get an agent? How do I get a manager, right? That's a question you get asked all the time. And I think the greatest way to answer that is, well, why don't you ask yourself, how do I be good, okay? How do I be a good writer? Because if you become a good writer, then you can probably get an agent or a manager, okay? So your product on the page has to be amazing, okay? That's how you attract interest. No beginning writer probably is gonna sell a concept. You know, Jack Johnson's a great story, but we have to write the script. You can't just go, hey, Jack Johnson, and they go, oh yeah, okay, that's great, go ahead and write it. When you're a beginner, you must write the script. You can't just get an agent based on a, a pitch. And, and there's people that sell access to producers and managers. I'm sure you've interviewed them. They say, we're gonna get you in the room with a great producer, we're gonna get you in the room with a great agent. Yeah, it, getting you in the room, yes. But then you're gonna go, here's my script, and they're gonna go, okay, it's no good. Next, right? So getting you in the room with someone is important as hell, yes. I'm not minimizing that at all. And it's very difficult. And a few years ago, I used to say, well, just shoot out your script, go to IMDb Pro, and uh, uh, there'll be emails for all the major production houses there, and there'll be general emails. They'll say not to send in the script, send it anyway. You know what? All those people are taking their emails off of IMDb Pro. There's no way to even get to uh, them. I mean, I, uh, I, I used to work for a guy uh, who I loved and who loved me, uh, a big network guy who's now a big guy somewhere else. I went over there, I was like, I haven't talked to this guy in years. Well, I got a guy, he, I know he wants to talk to me. His name's not even listed in the <laughs> company. Like, these guys are like Latin American dictators. Like, oh, you know, tinted windows. Oh, you know, I want to speak to no one, right? So even getting a hold of these people now is insanely hard. Because I guess they just get, you know, badgered all the time. So the best way to do it, I know of, is to just be really good really, really good. I have, an, I have an in because I go speak at places and I sound like I know what I'm talking about. And sometimes I get people afterwards come up to me and say, hey, I, oh, you sound great. I'd like to see your stuff. I know that other people don't have that. So the best way I think is to, be, is to have a super good script. That's rare, by the way. 99% of the time, you will see bad stories. When you read a script, as a script reader, I'd say, and this is a terrible statistic, but people should know, 98% of the time when you read a script, and these are scripts that have already gone through the process of, a big process of filtering, they're gonna not be good. Because writing a good script 
is insanely hard. It's just, it's hard, way harder than physics or brain surgery. Way it, harder. It's funny that you mentioned just sort of this, this dropping off the script and, and thinking that that's like the magical answer because I was reading something about Michael Crichton back in the day in the 90s and he was living in this like very unassuming place in Santa Monica, which I'm sure is not unassuming in price, but, but he was sort of <laughs> sure. living in plain sight, as they said, mm -hmm. you know, you wouldn't think that he'd be there because people would just drop off. He wanted to be sort of unknown in the neighborhood because he didn't want all these manuscripts just put in his mailbox, which is yeah. what was happening. So mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting that this theory of, hey, if I just know this person and I get this to them, we're good, you know? Yes, you know, that's and, and I know that's, that's a great thing to have pulsing in your heart because you need that, because that's the only way you're gonna succeed. But I would say to you, you say, no, Peter, I've done all that. All, you just, can you just get me to the agent? Just get this to the agent. This is it, I've got it. And I, I will say to them, I would bet you half my house that it is not good yet. <laughs> you know, you just please let me look at it and tell you because I'll bet you it's not good yet. And, and I, that's a terrible thing to say, but it's, look, I've spent 20 years before my stuff is anywhere near. I've got so much respect for a writer that can sit down and, and knock off a great script. I've heard that that's possible. There's one writer, he works for American Crime now, who apparently just went to a coffee shop one day and said, and he's a he was a comic, said, I'm gonna write a script. He wrote a script and he sold it, he was great. He's like Shakespeare. But 99.9% .9 of the people I know in the business that are very good, very talented, they didn't do it that way. They spent years before it got good. It's sort of like saying, hey, I think I could do stand-up, but I don't wanna go and do all the five years for it. Give me the comedy store, I'm gonna just do it tonight, you know? And I know that I'm so good, I've never done it, but I know I'm so good that I'll, that the, well, no, <laughs> you're, no, you're probably not, probably not going to do that. Another question that came in from our YouTube community tab is from Cher Davis. And Cher says, is it worth it to submit to contests when you're a new writer? Oh, yeah. I should have thought of that earlier. Uh, the blacklist thing, uh, the nickels. They, those are ways to get the attention of agents and managers. In fact, that's the gold standard. I, I would say, especially today, maybe even more than a few years ago, when you could just go on IDMDB Pro and find emails, which you can't anymore, for professional reasons. I would say winning a contest, that's guaranteed to get you some, some looks from agents and managers. Absolutely. I would highly recommend you do that. Okay. Another question came in from Mr. Green. Do I need to pursue creative writing in college to learn how to write a screenplay? I'm currently a business administration major. Uh, yeah, anything. Yeah, anything works. Um, anything works. Just, just write. Uh, buying a book works. Get, going to class works. Uh, learning structure is critical for film and television, way more than I think novel writing. Some writers might disagree with me. Structure in television and movies is something you must learn, e even if you hate structure, because without it, you will fail. There is a commercial form. S go outside the commercial form if you want, but understand, if you don't know the commercial structure, unless you're an instinctive genius for structure, you, you will not know what television and movie structure is, especially television structure, because TV structure is way more complicated than movies, and, um, and getting more so. Um, there's a show now called Sneaky Pete, and I think it has 10 storylines, 
Sneaky Pete has 10 storylines running almost every week. It's insane. I mean, it used to be two or three or four. Now they've got 10 storylines running in every episode practically. So structure is becoming more important in television. I'm not a big fan of thinking you got to go to school uh, to, to learn how to write, even though I, I teach at a pretty prestigious writing school. I, I just don't think you got to. But if that's what helps you do it, yeah. Uh, but yes, it's whatever helps you learn structure. But don't think you're going to just absorb it on your own uh, most of the time. Okay, fair enough. Kenan Anderson writes, when writing a spec show, what should the balance be episode-wise between the main story, subplots, and fillers? It depends on what you want the story to be about. You know, a main storyline is just that. It's everything, like, let's take Breaking Bad, everybody knows Breaking Bad. The main storyline is, was Walt going to be a badass drug dealer? Um, and, and, and that storyline is the storyline that's going to carry through all six, seven years of the show. Now, what supports that? It's up to you. Um, he's got two other main storylines. Is he going to save his family? And is he going to die of cancer? Um, you got 28 beats in an hour story. So your, your A storyline is going to have more beats than the others. You know what a beat is, by the way? A beat is a conflict. It's, it's, it's two people want something and it gets resolved. So you got 28 beats in an hour, maybe 30 if you want to be, be uh, super cool. Uh, and you got to get your, uh, uh, it's up to you, but it, your main storyline obviously takes the most time because it's the most interesting to us. There's no cut and dried answer to these questions, uh, except that you gotta stick within the structural form. But it's totally up to you. There, look, this isn't like being a CPA or, or even learning brain surgery. They're so, the rules are so, they're tough rules, but then you're on your own, okay? They're tough rules, then you're on your own. You, I can't tell you how many story beats to, 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 um, to ascribe to your main storylines. You are the only one who can decide that. It's so exciting. It's anarchy. <laughs> within, within the constraints. Of, within yeah. the absolute ironclad restraints. <laughs> it's, it's a riot in a prison. And you can't get out of the prison. So, you know, you're going to be in there with a nail and boards. Ah! You can do whatever you want, but you can't get out of prison. <laughs> Great analogy. Okay. So Chortle Games writes, is a streaming service series episode written differently than a traditional network cable TV show episode? If so, what are the differences? First of all, I commend the person on their name. Chortle Games? Yeah, hopefully I'm saying it correctly. That's cool, yeah. man. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I know. That's that is the neat. coolest name I've heard in years. <laughs> if you can stream episodes all together, that's an interesting question. We've just been watching... Um, because you tend to binge on them, yeah? You'll watch them one after the other. Um, you know what? Let me be honest and tell you I don't know. Because we binge on shows a lot now. And I'm trying to think of, would we not binge? Because there's a show called Billions that we'd love to binge on, but it comes out once a week. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here because I can. And this is probably wrong. I'm going to say there's no difference. Because you, you get caught up in a story or you don't. Um, I don't see why streaming means it's any different 
than a traditional network show, except, okay, here's one change. You might want to see people, no, that's not true either. No, Chortle, <laughs> there's no difference. I can't think of a single damn difference. And somebody can contradict me, but I don't think there's any difference, no. Okay, fair enough. Diego R. writes in, specifically for TV, how does one balance giving a satisfying season or episode for that matter, plot and closure with complete character arcs while leaving room for a new season that might be made? Well, you don't want to heal the, the wounds. That, that's basically it. Um, you take a show like Animal Planet, Animal Kingdom? I can't remember now. Is it Animal Kingdom? Animal, Animal Kingdom. Kingdom um, which is a great show by John Wells, who's kind of specializing now in taking foreign uh, shows and then turning them into American shows. Um, you've got a, a, a matriarch, a poisonous matriarch, Ellen Barkin, uh, and her uh, and her her kids, who she's completely massively screwing up constantly. Um, you know, you just never want to have those kids get better, <laughs> and they don't. <laughs> One of them's just been killed, oh. and the others are just as poisonous as they were. They're just a, a nest of snakes. I mean, the great thing about television is is that you 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 replace healing which is what you get in a movie, with surprise, okay? So characters don't change in television, they surprise with new, often appalling aspects of their character you didn't know about. For instance, let me ask you this, you probably have a, someone you've known for 20 years, right? A few people, yeah. And you, get, you know them better and better, right? Uh, some of them, yeah. Some, yeah. Mm -hmm. And as some you get to know them better and better, don't you find their insanely appalling people. <laughs> the more you know about uh, them. A few of them, yeah, yes. The more you know about uh, them, that like, would be oh my God. <laughs> oh my God, they're even worse than I thought. Right? Yep. <laughs> so that's television. Uh -huh. It's like, you know, it's not like that those people are going to heal and you go, oh, see you later, Dave. I'm glad you're you don't aren't with your mother anymore. Everything's great. It's like, oh my God. Dave's really a pervert. Where you're, you're learning new things <laughs> about them. Uh -huh. um, no, no, I'm just saying. Yeah, right, right, no, yeah. He wasn't you're, the person I was thinking no, about. No, I know. Yeah. You're, you're learning new <laughs> things about them uh -huh. that shock you. They're surprising. Oh, yes. Okay? Yes. For instance, in, 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 in The Sopranos, which you talked about earlier, Janice is getting married to a guy named Richie Aprile, and uh, they're, they're discussing their wedding plans one night, and he gets angry at her, and suddenly he slaps her, which you've never, ever seen him do before. He's never been violent to her. That's a surprise that Richie suddenly slaps Janice. It's not a change in his character. He's not getting worse. He's not doing what you do in a movie. I'm getting worse because my wounds, but he's just being Richie, but it's a surprise. Mm -hmm. Then Janice goes to a closet while he's sitting here eating his dinner. Put my dinner on the table. And she comes out of the closet, and she's got a gun. And he goes, come on, boom! And he shoot, she shoots him right at the table, okay? That's a new surprise from <laughs> We haven't seen her do that before, right? So, and is she healing or, did, or getting worse? No, she's just Janice. It's a new revelation of character, right? So the way you do it in television is you keep surprising us with new aspects 
of a character. Someone reveals something about themselves you didn't know before. That's what television is so great. It's more like real life than movies, right? It's just you and your friends learning more and more horrible, appalling things about each other <laughs> as, you, as you go along. And they're not things that are going to make you go, oh, well, they're healing or they're getting better. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's just, they're just horrible. Yeah, and, and so that's the big difference between movies and television. That surprise replaces healing. So Mag Movies writes in, Hi Peter, do you wholeheartedly recommend writing every day without fail, or do you think it might be better to let ideas come to you slash marinate and then continue whatever script you are working on? Well, the pat answer here is you must write every day. And I think that's probably true, but I hate writing every day. And that's probably why I failed for so long. So I'd say you probably should write every day, but I understand why you don't. But if you don't, you probably fail. <laughs> I don't know. I, yes, you should write every day. But writing is such a horrible thing. Uh, it's, it's so hard to write every day. But yes, of course you should write every day. But, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, look, some of the best people I know that work in, in, in television, uh, they're so happy they don't have to write every day. Uh, but doesn't it make sense you'd have to write every day? It makes sense to me. I mean, you're going to get things done quicker. Uh, don't go by me. Um, I didn't succeed for a long time. I think it's probably because I was lazy. So I think you should write every day. Yes, please write every day. Eat your vegetables. <laughs> call <laughs> your to, mother. <laughs> call your mother. Go to therapy. <laughs> Get your oil changed every 5,000 kilometers. Right. Unless it's synthetic. <laughs> and, oh, yes. Wait. Then you can wait a little right, longer. Right, right, yes. Right. All those things. Yes. But why do you hate writing every day? Why is uh, this so Because writing is so hard. First of all, you're alone. That's just why it's good to have a partner. Um, it's just so hard. I, I, I don't think, um, maybe some writers love it. I, I think writing's just extremely hard. And then what are you gonna write about? You, can, <laughs> you have something to write about. And it's probably gonna be stuff you already did that you've got notes on. So I, I just, look, writing is just for me an agony. I mean, it, I, I'm probably a bad person to ask what your habits should be. I have terrible habits and they haven't stood me in good stead. I am not a good moral teacher in any way about anything. But wouldn't it make sense that it would be the healthy thing to write every day? And if you can enjoy it, you certainly should. Okay. You should, you should, you should enjoy writing. Mm. You should always enjoy what you do. So Alberto writes in, can a main character have two desires? Sure, but usually only one wound. Um, people often think uh, that they can, they get excited about the whole idea of a core wound, which they should, because it really gives you an original character. But when we in real life, by the way, we have a dozen wounds, right? I mean, you know, like, let's talk about mine or not, but everybody has more than one wound. Sure. But movies, and to some extent television, they have more lead, are simple, okay? So you want to sort of see uh, uh, one big uh, wound, uh, but then yes, many desires come out of that. You know, um, Tony Soprano had one big wound. My mommy hates me. Um, so, but a bunch of desires came out of that. You know, I love prostitutes. <laughs> I love working at a strip club. I love hurting people. Uh, I love to be violent. Um, you know, I, I, I love to run things. I love being a boss. You know, I love being a, a dad. I like so. So you can have many desires. Just know that all the desires come out of the wound, and they're often unhealthy. 
okay? They're often unhealthy desires. That's what you want to see. If they were healthy, there'd be no show. So, uh, especially in television, you get wounded and then you do a lot of unhealthy things. And sometimes your superpower, and in television, that's another thing you need to know. Usually in television, your hero has a superpower. And usually that superpower, especially at the beginning, is being used for wrong reasons, bad purposes. For instance, Don Draper in Mad Men has a superpower. He's insanely seductive, okay? He, and he's seductive as a womanizer, and he's seductive as an ad man. But it comes from the fact that his mommy didn't love him, right? He feels unlovable. So all the things he does, he uses his superpower for bad reasons, because he's wounded. He seduces women, right? He, he uh, does ad campaigns for cigarettes and horrible things, and, and he's amoral as an ad man because He's misusing the superpower, but the superpower came from his wound. If he hadn't been wounded, I'm not lovable, he would have never become a great seducer. He wouldn't have needed to. So the, the superpower is related to the wound, but, the, but, the, but the, the things he wants come out of the unhealthy uh, desires uh, of him trying to make the wound go away, trying to feel better about the wound. Every desire is an ability, is an attempt to sapophorize the, the, the wound, to, to, to palliate the wound. Nice. <laughs> this is from TJW. When writing a TV spec, how far in the future should you know your story? Multiple seasons? Yeah, I would say so. I'd say you should know what the end of it's going to be. You really should. Um, What's interesting is you take a show like Mad Men, uh, but you know that the the end of the show, nothing's really going to be any different than <laughs> the beginning. There really isn't. If the, if the first episode of Mad Men, Don Draper uh, is a New York ad man who's really unhappy in his marriage, and he's he's got a big hole in his soul. What's the last final scene of of Don Draper's Mad Men episode? He's going to go back and be a New York ad man. He's a seducer of women, untroubled with his relationship with women, and he's got a big hole in his soul. <laughs> right? It, so it's not hard to know the ending of your TV show because it's going to be the same as your beginning. There's, there's really no, unless it's a miniseries where, like True Detective, where um, in season one where Rusty and Marty actually change incredibly because that's a movie, basically. Remember, miniseries are long movies you're always just gonna be in the same place. So yeah, knowing the ending is not hard. You're gonna be in exactly the same place as you were at the beginning. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is still slaying vampires and still not happy about it at the end, okay? Glover in Atlanta, his character, however long Atlanta goes, unless he just wants to say, screw you, I'm not gonna do what you expect me to do, his character is still gonna be bumping along feeling like a loser at the very end of Atlanta. Sneaky Pete, same thing. Sneaky Pete's still going to be conflicted about having a family versus being a con artist, uh, being alone versus being with his family. I don't care how many seasons you have. So it's not hard figuring out where your television show is going to go because it's going nowhere. <laughs> so Arpith writes, do you think three-act structure is mandatory? Can you provide an example of a movie without a three-act structure? A movie without? Yeah, a Godard movie. Yeah. 
any movie where there's a French guy in a beret peeing in an alley. They have no structure. They have no acts. Okay. Yes, any one of those. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you know what's funny? John Waters, the Pink Flamingos movies actually do have a structure. It's very hard to get away from structure. Um, yeah, uh, the French movies sometimes do it. I'd love to hear him tell me what American movie doesn't have that structure. Uh, maybe, what was the movie with Ethan Hawke where it was shot over 12 years? No, that has, that has oh. the same structure too, though. Not Boyhood, but is it? Boyhood. Oh, okay, okay. Mm -hmm. It's got the same three-act structure. Is he going to be a good father? Same thing, got to be him up C. Very hard to get away with that in commercial uh, television or movies. Uh, but I invite people to try and be super geniuses right. who break all the rules. Now someone by the name of Shaggy Rogers writes in, if you don't mind, what pilots have you sold recently? Uh, well, there's two that I have sold to production companies this year. Oh, great. Uh, one is a serial drama, crime serial drama. Let me do the log line. It's... Uh, it's True Detective meets Ray Donovan, <laughs> and it is a, a very, very dark story uh, about a, a guy in um, uh, Santa Monica. We set it in Santa Monica because it's Santa Monica is a very corrupt town, you know, so no one's ever <laughs> talked about the corruption. It's old drug money. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, yes. Uh, and, uh, but he's a very dark hero, uh, and he, he, he solves crimes. Um, but he does so uh, while, well, he actually solves them because he's also, he has the instincts of a child molester. Oh. And he's actually kidnapped and keeps captive an 11-year-old girl in his basement. Yes, very dark, cool. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but he, he doesn't molest her, but, and in fact, she becomes his ally. Oh, like the Stockholm Syndrome kind of thing? Uh, yes, except for both of them. So he's battling this terrible impulse inside of himself. But because he's battling it, because he doesn't give in to it, he actually develops a relationship with her and it helps him solve crimes. And she becomes someone who helps him solve crimes and who helps him heal. So it's very dark. Uh, but uh, it's it, it has... It's it's a crime drama, so there is there's it's an episode. Uh, there's a there's a there's a crime solved every uh, a week, but there's also a long arc over the course of the entire uh, season, and that's sort of fashionable now to have both to have. Um, um, but it's a discomforting um, premise. It's it's very raw and very mm. dark. Uh, and and uh, uh, yeah, it's it's um, it's 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 a it's a dark dark crime drama, and the other one is the Jack Johnson miniseries, um, which is a miniseries. So, what I was thinking to talk about today a little bit was the fact that I've got this superhero miniseries, then I've also got this serial drama where the guy doesn't really heal. In that crime drama, he doesn't really heal. So his wound is bleeding all through the season and will continue to bleed all through the other seasons. He will never get healthy. He will never stop desiring underage girls. Um, but it is a, it's like a nuclear reactor, it's contained fire. 
but the struggle is always there. And how do you make him, by the way, likable and sympathetic? That was the big question, right? Because that's a tough one, right? How do you make that character likable and sympathetic? What about it like in Lolita? Well, that's a movie, Mm -hmm. and I didn't particularly like Humbert Humbert, um, but um, I felt sympathy for him because he was so, he it was so clearly he was going to crash and burn, right? I mean, he was so in in thrall to this awful, awful desire. He 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 if he if he could have, he'd have given it up. Yeah, who would want to be enthralled to this awful desire, right? Mm-hmm. So the, if you had sympathy for Humbert Humbert, it was that he's he's doing something that is going to earn him the opprobrium of everyone in the world. And yet he can't not do it, right? Mm. He can't not do it. So it's like a, it's watching a guy who can't keep himself from cutting his own throat. He's going he's gonna to do it, even though he knows it's going to kill him. That's one of the things in this um, Sharp Objects, mm. is that she's a cutter. And, and Yes. Yeah, and so... So our sympathy for her is that it's it's wounding behavior that she can't help. Right. And we see her pain. And so I'm showing, and we're showing in this story, because um, uh, I have a really brilliant co-writer uh, in this story as well. I like working with other people. Uh, Lori Johnson is, is her name. Um, that help uh, humanize this this guy, this this horrible guy, by showing that he was the victim of, of an insane, horrible father. And that he not only has a genetic uh, propensity, which he has uh, uh, to be, to have this, this, this twisted sexuality, but he also, his, his own sister was raped and killed by his father. And he had to watch it and, uh, 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 and, and, and watch uh, all of that happen. So we get that story. And he's also suicidal. So we get all that story in, in the pilot, um, which is important. When you have someone this awful, yeah. you've got to make quickly show uh, something that makes them more sympathetic. Or you've lost your audience entirely. And maybe you should. I mean, I know people think Hollywood is horrible for even entertaining the idea that, that a character like this should be sympathetic, right? So that's part of the controversy, too. Should you even have a character like this on the air? Hmm. I don't know, but um, it, it's it's a powerful story. So that's those are the two I, I'm most involved with right now. But I'm always open for more. You know, I love collaborating with people. Um, it's my thing, and um, I, I always when I go and teach or talk somewhere, um, I often get somebody to come to me and say, "Hey, honey, what do you think of this story?" And, and a lot of the times, I, I say, "Yeah, let's do it." Uh, um, I'm excited to put my learning to use with somebody else uh, and their vision. It seems to be uh, kind of the way uh, I work the best. Okay. Hiding behind someone else. <laughs> and then if it's not good, hey, it's their fault. <laughs> Look, I did the best I could. <laughs> that sounds like a good plan. Yeah, like it's great. This question came in from Tornado Boy, and he writes, maybe some more tips on writing anti-heroes? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, the biggest tip is surround them with people that are worse than them. Uh, and surround them with people that 
push them to be an anti-hero so that you feel sympathy for the anti-hero. That's really the critical key. Um, and again, an anti-hero um, like, uh, uh, like Walter White in Breaking Bad, the reason that we root for him is the people around him are worse than him. Even his, uh, his, his, uh, his brother-in-law, Hank, is just horrible from the beginning. We see the way he bullies Walter, and we just can't wait to see him get his butt kicked. It takes a few, few years. But he's actually getting his butt kicked all along because he's never... He never learns about Walter. And by the way, Hank's a good guy in a lot of ways. He's, he's a good uh, uh, uncle. He's, he's a provider. But because he's so bullying to Walter, because he's such a, a blowhard, he, and he's just one in a constellation of figures around Walter that we find to be worse than Walter. Uh, Walter, the, obviously the criminals are worse. Um, obviously, when he's dealing with uh, his... Uh, his, his work situation, his ex-wife who screwed him out of his company. So everybody around Walter, uh, it makes us want to root for Walter. Right. That's the critical key for an anti-hero. Thinking about the clothing store scene. Oh yeah, you know, for instance, when he's with his kid right, right. and his kid's getting on jeans and, and, and these guys are making fun, you go to these big boy pants. Mm -hmm. So these horrible bullies who are making fun of a kid with a disability, right. we want to see their butts kick. <laughs> and here comes Walter and it's one of the great, and by it is, by the way, it's the end point of act three. I have that BMMOC and the, and the BMMOC for Walter is, is he going to take care of his family? That's one of his questions, right? Mm -hmm. So when those guys bully his kid, here's the climax of that act. Walter comes back in, says, take your shot. Come on, come on, fight me. And we are cheering Walter because those guys just crumple and they're big guys too. And Walter's this little wimpy guy. Uh, even his wife's a little turned on, right? Because, <laughs> oh, well, look at you, right? So Walt is standing up to awful behavior. So an anti-hero, even though Walter becomes one of the worst people around, um, even at the end, I am always like, oh, Walter, oh, he machine gunned all those guys. So make the people around your anti-hero just horrible people, and you'll be great. You'll love the anti-hero. This question comes in from Stein Kolovit. Forgive me for saying the name incorrectly. I've sometimes wondered whether I should write TV series in addition to features, but so far it seems to me that stories, that the stories I want to tell are better told through films. Can Mr. Russell give an example of why a story would be better told as a TV series? Well, if you love movies, and so many people do, and I know that a lot of people who grew up loving movies, they're kind of appalled that television has taken over. Think of it this way. You can tell any movie as a TV miniseries. You can take the movie that you've been writing for the last four or five years, and you can turn it into a television miniseries uh, more easily than you can turn it into a TV series. So think of it that way. Now, I spent several years learning genres of movies, mystery thriller, crime thriller, uh, horror, all of these genres, and I sort of mastered the understanding, the deep understanding of each one of those genres. And every one of those genres is very different. And they all have these cool tools that I learned to help movie people. 
Well, guess what? Turns out, when I turn my attention to television, all the rules of movie thrillers apply to the crime drama that I'm selling as a serial right now, Ray Donovan meets True Detective. All of those cool structural tools that work in Seven, that work in all these classic movies, turns out those secrets transfer right over to television. So just know that everything you've learned about movies works in TV. But the easiest transition is to move, take your movie idea and turn it into a mini-series. Why? Well, for some of the reasons we talked about earlier, which is mainly mini-series are like long movies because the characters have an arc. They start with a wound and they eventually heal or not. So if you're writing movies and you love movies, make the transition to television by writing a mini-series where you can simply stretch your idea into a longer form. Forget the structure so much, but those cool tools, which by the way, I have on my website, PeterRussellScriptDoctor.com. I go, each genre of movies has a set of hidden structures and tools in it. Just take those hidden structures and tools and apply them to your television show in the same genre. Writing a comedy, apply the movie comedic rules to your sitcom. Writing a romantic comedy, same thing. Love story, same thing. Adventure romance, same thing. Write a mini-series. It's a bridge form. It'll help you learn why television has two big differences with movies. One is that uh, uh, the characters don't really change in television, and the other one is you can tell more uh, uh, than you can in a movie where you want to show everything. So there's just more dialogue. But those are the two big differences. Everything else can be the same, especially in a miniseries. It's a great bridge uh, uh, for you uh, to learn uh, this new structure. And you'll just have a better chance of getting your story bought. I didn't say great chance, <laughs> I said better chance. Because I think we're up to 550 scripted television shows now in the U.S. Uh, there a few years ago there were 200. So, and I I I believe that's going to simply continue. I think in 10 years television is going to be five times as big as it is right now. So, if you want your work to sell, learn the new forms by bridging your way to TV through using your movie as a mini series. Were miniseries in fashion, so to speak, previously? And I, they were in the research? 70s. Mm -hmm. I, I know there were big miniseries in the 70s, like the Thornbirds. Right. Um, there was a, another show called Shogun. So oh, yes. the, these were these were big event television. So they'd be on one a, a night for three or four nights, five nights sometimes. But then there was a long period when they weren't uh, fashionable. But they've gotten very fashionable again. Um, you know, uh, Ryan Murphy, all these guys who write these fantastic shows, um, you know, uh, uh, the O.J. Simpson trial, the uh, um, Trust, which is a great one that Danny Boyle just did um, about the Getty family, brilliant miniseries, um, and, and the assassination of Gianna Versace. Um, they, they are, um, I think, where a lot of movie makers are going in television. Um, because it's a more commodious form. It's the easiest 
uh, a way to transition from film to television. So yeah, and I think the miniseries also is kind of satisfies our desire for uh, seeing a movie, which is I want to see somebody change. I want to see a complete story, right? When you're watching Animal Kingdom, uh, okay, well, Ellen Barkin's still going to be a poisonous bitch. Okay, well, let's have some popcorn. <laughs> but you, at some point, you want to sort of see what's going to happen, right? It, it, can, can we have some resolution? Can we actually resolve something in our lives? That's what great movies have always done for us. So I think that instinct to be have a complete story is why miniseries have become so much more popular. They're sort of replacing what movies used to give us, which is that sense of a complete story. Ah, we're done. Ellen Barkin's dead. Yay. <laughs> Two of the kids got help. <laughs> They've got therapy, right? Thank God we can have dinner now, right? As opposed to, oh God, she's still in jail. She's feeling tormented, right? Is she still wearing those awful black contacts? Yes, she is. She still looks like death, right? In a movie, she would have moved on. <laughs> she'd probably be dead or she'd be okay. But yeah, that's why miniseries, I think, are so popular. So you said in the 70s they were popular. Can you see any parallels between now and that time? Do you think there's, there's something in audiences that is... Yeah, I, I think that um, we are... Uh, we love long-form entertainment. And we, we like... That's, I think, why we binge series, too. Um, I think entertainment's becoming like the Russian novel. What do I mean by that? The 19th century. This sounds so pretentious. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the Russian novel, Tolstoy, got longer and longer and bigger and bigger and bigger, bigger right? And the, and the, till there, there were 1,000 pages, 1,500 pages, right? That's the sign of the maturity of an art form, right? Hmm. That's when uh, art form gets its best, when it gets big. When it gets long, I think we're in, in that, and Susie hates me saying a golden age, but I think we are in a golden age of entertainment because the stories are getting so much longer. And look, you can tell everybody is neither a good guy nor a bad guy. Everybody's got a combination of traits in them, right? Mm -hmm. So a movie can't really show you that. There's not enough time. You're either good or you're bad. Television and the longer form can show both the good and the bad inside of all of us. It's a more sophisticated model of human behavior. I think we're just getting to be more sophisticated as people to know that people's stories are complex. I'm not all good. I'm not all evil. I'm mostly evil, but <laughs> there's some good in me. But that's the mix. And so longer form art can give us a com more complete picture of what humanity is about. Questions one should ask themselves about writing a TV show. Are there specific Okay, there's things? nine questions I always ask when I'm, when I'm first talking to someone about their TV show. First of all, what does TV do? It gives us a great world. We need a great world because we're going to be in it for 150 episodes, right? So what's a great world, right? I, I would do an exercise where I say to you, you give me a great world and don't tell me it's New York City. I, I want to know a specific neighborhood of New York City. What's the great world? Because great television is always about a great world. Now, uh, if you want to talk about New York, then give me a specific world in it. Like there's a show called Billions. And this show is brilliantly written. It's probably the best television out there right now. And it's all about billionaires, how they make their money and how they live their fascinating lives, right? Uh, another fascinating world, the assassination of Gianna Versace. That was a world of Versace, a uh, fashion world in Miami. And then this 
guy who became a serial killer, his world, I'd never seen it before. Um, so Carbon Black is this really cool sci-fi show. Uh, it's about a cool future where people can change bodies, right? Uh, so they have sleeves, they call it. So your world, you want to ask yourself, what is the world of your show? Atlanta is probably the coolest show on television right now. And it's all about this African-American uh, milieu of middle class, lower middle class Atlanta and this sort of slacker guy in it and how he's gonna survive in this slacker world. Never seen it before, Stranger Things. Um, that's the world of the 80s, and that's big nostalgia for kids that are 20, 30 right now. It, people on their bikes without helmets. <laughs> uh, uh, television sets that were tubes uh, with rabbit ears. Uh, so the world there is absolutely about the nostalgia, yeah? So big question, what's your world? That's what we want to see. Fantasy continues to be big. Um, I hate it, but zombie is a world that just continues to be true. True blood, vampires romance continues to be good. Black comedy world of shameless, uh, white trash. So worlds are extraordinarily important in your show. Uh, the next question I ask is, do you have a, um, do you have a theme that matters? What do you want to say about the world in your television show? For instance, a, a, a show like um, uh, 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 Sons of Anarchy, which is a great world, the world of motorcycle show. The theme is, if you have a bad mom or dad, you're going to be screwed. <laughs> you need to have a good parent. You need to be mentored. Well, he's not. And that means the entire show is about how the hero of the show fails because he doesn't have a good mom and dad. His dad's dead. His mom's horrible. And, and so this truth about life is often what hipsters ignore when they're writing a story. They're like, ah, I want to write this story. I call it the weed and speed. It's going to be a sort of motorcycles and violence and razor blades and people smoking crack. And, and I'm like, okay, great. 10 minutes. I'll love it. Then what's the truth about life you're saying? Sons of Anarchy, Kurt Sutter's brilliant writer. Why? Because he's got a theme that this hero, hero who drives a motorcycle, who's tough, who does all the things that you're saying you want to see, the violence, the sex, the motorcycles, all that stuff. But every episode is about this guy struggling with the fact he doesn't have a dad. What, how do I live my life without a dad or a mom? And he never figures it out. And he's screwed because of it. So theme answers the question. In Orange is the New Black, which is a brilliant show, What's the theme? Well, you better know yourself. Piper can't, doesn't know if she likes girls or boys. And the whole show is about, oh, do I like guys? Do I like girls? I don't know. Who am I? I don't know. You tell me who I am. So that's a great theme, too. So Downton Abbey has a theme, which is that the lower class is rising, and we have to understand how it's rising. That's the theme of every episode of Downton Abbey, okay? So theme is in Strutting in, in The Wire, which is probably the most, the intellectuals, uh, a wet dream of a show, The Wire. David Simon, in his story Bible, and that's something you should also have when you're pitching a story. Um, his message is this. This story, I'm going to just read this because this is in the front page of the story Bible. This story is about the human condition, about it's not just a police show. It's a show about how we have taken the urban 
uh, uh, underclass and have jailed them and tormented them and torn them apart in our stupid drug war, okay? That's his theme, and it's a social theme, and that motivates every, every uh, uh, one of those uh, episodes. So if you don't have that, and it works even in a sitcom, you're not gonna have a show that works. So what are you passionate, what do you believe in? I ask my students this sometimes, what do you believe in? Like, I don't know, I mean, that's not important, I'm gonna write a hip story. No, you're not, you're gonna bore us. Uh, the next question is, why do we wanna watch the show every week? Okay, every week we gotta watch a show, 100 episodes, so you need a great question, right? In Breaking Bad, what's the great hook question? Every week, how bad's Walter gonna break? What's he gonna do this week? Oh God, he's gonna be even worse, okay? Uh, making a murderer, hey, did, did he do it or not? That's a pretty good question, yeah? Every week we get that. Orange is a new black. Is Piper ever gonna figure out if she likes girls or boys? No, she's not gonna. So, but this question continues. It's the hook, it's the great question of the show. Mr. Robot, can Elliot take down the big corporation? Okay, Game of Thrones, which family's gonna win? Every episode is about that, right? And what's the theme of Game of Thrones, by the way? Because it's kind of important. The theme is, do you have to be evil to be a great leader? Okay, that's the whole question for every episode, right? So that's an important question. Okay, so the next one is genre. Let's not go into that because I teach that. It's a structural thing, but you need to stick in your genre. Uh, what parents are your show like? In television, if you're gonna write a TV show, you gotta ask yourself, what are the parents of the show? Who, what shows are like this that you've seen before? And, and my hip students, I was like, ah, Peter, I don't wanna ever, ah, my show's like nothing else ever on. It's like, okay, well then it's not gonna go, it's not gonna get on. And even, <laughs> even if you want it to be completely different from everything, we need to understand what you're reacting to. What did you hate, okay? You gotta have parents for the show, and it'll help you build your show if you do, okay? So then, then the next question, and, and this is super important, is, well, how do I say it? Um, what is the question that torments the hero forever that will never be resolved? What's the unsolvable dilemma for the hero that will never ever be solved? And that is, in Mad Men, it's I am unlovable and the things I do to make myself lovable make me so uncomfortable that I run away. Don Draper seduces woman after woman after woman in Mad Men, but every time they fall in love with him, they always do, he runs away because he hasn't solved his basic dilemma, which is I'm unlovable. Okay, so that is the unsolvable dilemma, okay? Even in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it's I just want to be uh, alpha bitch and be in high school and be popular. No, you're a vampire slayer. I don't want to be a vampire slayer. 150 episodes of that unsolvable dilemma, okay? Um, breaking Bad, Walt's dying, he's gotta take care of his family. How does he do it? He becomes a drug dealer and destroys his family. So the thing that makes him want to take care of his family, the way he does it, destroys his family, okay? True Detective, Rust, first he's, Rust knows the world is meaningless. Marty believes there's a lot of meaning in the world. 
How do they resolve that? Well, they do in the end because, remember, it's a mini-series. It's like a movie. So in the end, they do both believe the world's a great place, but that's not classic TV, okay? So will Walt protect his family or destroy it? Um, will Russ view, um, how can good prevail in a world that's run by the strongest? That's Game of Thrones. How can we have a world where there's a good leader when it's the worst people who always win, right? Unsolvable dilemma. Maybe in the end, you know, the two people with the Ikea rugs on their back, they're going to learn how to do it. <laughs> but, but for the whole seven, eight years, they don't have it. So what is the irreconcilable conflict in your show? What is the dilemma that will never be resolved uh, that, that, that will keep people coming back? And obviously, that has to do with their core wound. So the next question is, what's the big core wound in your hero? How does that work in your television show? Um, and there's many different ones. Um, and, and, and it's always about that unreconcilable dilemma. Madman, I'm unlovable. Uh, Tyrion in Game of Thrones, I'm unlovable. Everything he does is because of that. Walters is, I'm weak. And my father used to say, never corner a weak man. Yeah, they'll, they'll turn out to be really strong. Uh, Wade in Deadpool, by the way, because this is true also in movies, is I'm ugly. A Randall in This Is Us, which is a great serial show we haven't talked much about. Randall is, I'm not part of this family, right? My skin color is different, I'm not really part of the family. Pete in Sneaky Pete, I'm not part of a family. Great core wound, Jessica Jones and Jessica Jones. I'm not safe. This villain can get me. He'll always get me. So core wounds are the nuclear reactors of your show. They really are. And they have to have. Daenerys's core wound in Game of Thrones is, I'm powerless. And we see the entire first season for Daenerys. She starts out as this little sex slave for her brother. She's given to this uh, warrior as a sex object. By the end of the season, she's walked through fire and hatched dragon eggs. So her powerlessness is beginning to go away, but it will continue through the entire run of Game of Thrones. I'm powerless. Is she getting powerful? She's beginning to, but that'll take a long time. So these are just the beginnings of the questions that I would ask. There's many others, but this is a start when you're writing television. And they are different from film, but those, those start, when I would start talking to someone about their TV show, these are the questions I would ask them at the beginning issues that were facing the family at that time. Like mm -hmm. Eight is Enough, when I would watch it, that wasn't a representation of how I lived or mm -hmm. I didn't have siblings and things like that. But I watched it as, wow, that's what, quote, the normal families dealt with. Right. And I could watch it as this little girl thinking, oh, wow, that, I want to be one of the, you know. The, well, but I think wanted, about this. Mm -hmm, think yeah, about this. Uh -huh. Seventh Heaven and The Cosby Show were both run by rapists. <laughs> so... You, you have to ask yourself, what were we watching then? We were watching myths, okay? We were watching at a time when I think the family was actually breaking up and was dissolute. We were watching guys who literally were in their own personal lives, uh, allegedly, <laughs> uh, committing sex crimes. So what does that tell us about what that period of time was for television. It was a time when I think um, we had a much less sophisticated view of what art could be. Uh, television then was, I think, a propaganda for um, a, a particular way of life that was 
mostly BS. Yes, I think. Well, we could go back farther. Father knows best. Mm-hmm. Leave it to Beaver. Things like that. Was yeah. it the Donna Reed show? Or I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's even more safe within this little box. You know, I mean, I Love Lucy was silly and and fun, and, and you could have fun with them. But I'm talking about where you saw very defined roles for the mother and father and the right. good children versus the Eddie Haskells. Mm-hmm. You know, and now mm-hmm. it's almost as if okay, we know that a lot of stuff's been a big lie and a lot of mm-hmm. the mighty have fallen in some ways. Let's just let it be and kind of revel in that. I think art always does that. You know, Leave it to Beaver was considered a groundbreaking show when it came out, a very realistic show, because it had kids talking back to their parents. Eddie Haskell actually said some mean things on camera. It was a groundbreaking show at the time it came out. It wasn't compared to, say, Donna Reed or the others that were very sanitized. So I think an art form, if it's growing, continues to show you, and this is really pompous, I'm sorry, but I think it's why (laughs) television is great now. It shows you better and better what the world's really like, okay? So television today, I think, is, is better because it's more sophisticated and actually shows us more of the world than TV did 30 years ago. You know, movies were cool because they showed us stuff TV couldn't. Movies were cool in the 70s because we could see nudity, we could see violence, we could see obscenity, we could see adult themes that TV just couldn't tackle, right? Movies lost its edge over TV because now we can see all those things on TV, right? That's part of why TV's cool. Those rules don't exist anymore. And I think when an art form is at its freest, it it can also be at its best. When it's able to show everything about a society. Now we're not there yet. There's still things we can't show on TV. I'm working on a crime drama right now that's very controversial. It's got a guy in it who could be a child molester. And he's supposed to be the anti-hero of the show. That's very, very controversial. And I don't know if it's going to succeed, but I hope it does. Because when you can't talk about something, you can't face it. And when you can't face it, you can't heal it. And so I'm not a big fan of political correctness, and I really believe television is at its best when it doesn't have anybody saying, oh, you can't do that. No, no, no. You can't say that. No, no, no. That's that's beyond bounds. And I think sometimes we have political correctness from both left and right that are keeping our uh, uh, art forms from being free. And you can say all you want about Hollywood being a, a horrible place full of awful people. And it is. There's tons of terrible people there. My dad was a Southern Baptist minister. He used to rail against Hollywood. Yeah. And I was just telling Dad, you know what? You're absolutely right. I've been out there. It's absolutely full of horrible, evil people. You were totally right talking in the pulpit. Yeah, man, I couldn't have put it any better. But as Milton said in Arapatagitica, you can't praise a cloistered virtue. You can't say, oh, Hollywood sucks. We've got to shut it down. They've done that in so many countries in the world. They don't have vibrant TV industries. Why is our entertainment industry, why do we sell all over the world? It's not because people love us. They hate America. You know, they think America's awful. Why does America sell all over the world? I think it's because Hollywood, for all its faults, doesn't get its money from government. 
doesn't have a bunch of uh, puritanical judges saying this, you can say this, you can't say this. It gets its power from people paying money to see its product. No rules, no regulation. Uh, it's the honestly, it's it's the most free market uh, product uh, produced by these warm-hearted socialists at the top of every uh, economic entertainment company. They're the most cutthroat capitalists on earth. That's what I love Hollywood is it's anarchy at its best. It has no rules. It's funny that you mentioned that I was in a restaurant um, after some sort of scandalous thing broke. I won't go into what it was, but I was in between going somewhere else and I was reading some notes from a screener that I just saw a film. And so the woman behind me was with a man and they were both, it seemed like, in the same line of work, either attorneys or, or social workers. And she's complaining about her day and he's not listening. And I can feel it behind me, and I can feel her frustration. And so then she kind of turned to me and said, "Well, you know, I used to work in film and television, and I effing hated it. And I could, I was like, you know, what? I think it's time for me to go now. <laughs> but I, I could feel the the, and it had, it was right after a scandal had broke, and and it was in the news, and it was on Twitter, and everybody was giving their opinion, and and it was interesting because I I didn't, I wasn't even aware that that's how it's perceived. There's so many people I know who've quit working in show business because they, they say it's such a poisonous environment. There's so many abusive people, and there are. I don't, I don't know how many healthy people work in Hollywood, probably very few. Everyone <laughs> in it is damaged, <laughs> terribly damaged. Um, but I think that was true in Shakespeare's age, too. Look, you know, the theater was banned by the Puritans. It's a place of, uh, of, of unhealthiness where unhealthy things happen. I think. Where you have no rules, you have society's gangsters move in, right? But I think that's where most great art happens. And I also think that nobody really knows how show business works. So part of the reason I think you guys do the work you do is so good is everyone's saying, you know, how does Hollywood work? Where are the rules? I want somebody to give me the way things work. And what I think you have to say to people is, that, guess what? There aren't any rules in this field. This is shadow town. This is where you have to make up your own rules. Nothing's going to be given to you. There's no school you can go get a little diploma and go, here you go, there's your showbiz degree. Now you can go get a job. Here's the field, here's the desk, here's your office. After 20 years, you get a pension. No, this is for chancers. This industry is for unhealthy people. <laughs> who are deeply damaged and hurt by life, and they want to create story uh, for a variety of terrible reasons. But I think out of that comes the greatest art. I think it's always been that way. I, I don't know which French guy said it, but he said, art is a sewer, <laughs> and from this sewer emerges gold. And I think that's Hollywood. It's never going to be a place of healthy people doing things. And, and I don't know that you should get in it if, if your goal is to lead a, a healthy, productive life with predictable outcomes, um, where at the end of your life, you're going to go, oh, it's great. I've got my pension. I'm going to retire now. I'm going to go to Florida. Everything's great. I've got my health insurance. And it's fine. That, this town is not for you. And, and I, I think that's just always going to be the way it is. Art's dangerous and scary and it's made by dangerous and scary people. <laughs>